Welcome to Convention Pulpit, Wesleyan Voices Past and Present, brought to you through the Ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention. Visit our website for an entire library of great sermons and more information on this ministry, www.ihconvention.com. Jeremy Fuller is one of our younger ministers that God is using mightily across the country. He's the vice president of the God's Missionary Conference of Churches. This sermon was preached in 2013 at the Dayton Interchurch Holiness Convention, and he titles this sermon, The Spirit of Elijah. I know you'll enjoy this excellent message. Keep passing it on and on. Thank you, Brother Stetler and Brother Plank, Brother Sankey, and those that were responsible for the invitation to be here with you today. 2 Kings chapter number 2. 2 Kings chapter number 2. I feel it is necessary for me to read this familiar passage to do honor to God's holy word. It is a familiar passage, and I have for a couple of moments thought that maybe I wouldn't read it in order to give myself more time to unburden my heart. But the Word of God must have the preeminence in our ministries. We don't have our own ideas. We don't just have our heritage. We've got the present living Word of God that is sharper than any two-edged sword. It is piercing. It is dividing. It is a discerner. And so may God honor the reading and the preaching of His Holy Word this morning. I'm going to allow you to remain seated. I'm going to read the first 15 verses, follow along please, 2 Kings chapter 2. And it came to pass when the Lord would take up Elijah into heaven by a whirlwind, that Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal. And Elijah said unto Elisha, Tarry here, I pray thee, for the Lord hath sent me to Bethel. And Elisha said unto him, As the Lord liveth, and as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. So they went down to Bethel. And the sons of the prophets that were at Bethel came forth to Elisha and said unto him, Knowest thou that the Lord will take away thy master from thy head today? And he said, Yea, I know it. Hold ye your peace. And Elijah said unto him, Elisha, tarry here, I pray thee, for the Lord hath sent me to Jericho. And he said, As the Lord liveth and as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. So they came to Jericho. And the sons of the prophets that were at Jericho came to Elisha and said unto him, Knowest thou that the Lord will take away thy master from thy head today? And he answered, Yea, I know it. Hold ye your peace. And Elijah said unto him, Tarry, I pray thee here, for the Lord hath sent me to Jordan. And he said, As the Lord liveth, and as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. And they too went on. 
And fifty men of the sons of the prophets went and stood to view afar off, and they too stood by Jordan. And Elijah took his mantle and wrapped it together and smote the waters, and they were divided hither and thither, so that they too went over on dry ground. And it came to pass, when they were gone over, that Elijah said unto Elisha, Ask what I shall do for thee before I be taken away from thee. And Elisha said, I pray thee, let a double portion of thy spirit be upon me. And he said, Thou hast asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if thou see me when I am taken from thee, it shall be so unto thee. But if not, it shall not be so. And it came to pass, as they still went on and talked that, Behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire and parted them both asunder. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven, and Elisha saw it, and he cried, My father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. And he saw him no more. And he took hold of his own clothes and rent them in two pieces. He took up also the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and went back and stood by the bank of Jordan. And he took the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and smote the waters and said, Where is the Lord God of Elijah? And when he also had smitten the waters, they parted hither and thither and Elisha went over. And when the sons of the prophets which were to view at Jericho saw him, they said, The spirit of Elijah doth rest on Elisha, shall we pray. Father in heaven, we ask this morning in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that your Holy Spirit would walk among us, that he would brood upon us, that he would rise up within us, that he would speak through lips of clay, that you would come and sanctify this service to the glory of thy name and to the propagation of thy gospel and to the increase of thy kingdom. Wash me now in the blood of thy Holy Son, Cleanse this vessel anew afresh uh, that all the rivers of God might flow through it. Uh, I pray in Jesus' name and all God's people said. I want to lift from my text this morning the words of the 50 men that looked on from Jericho when they said that the spirit of Elijah doth rest on Elisha. The spirit of Elijah doth rest on Elisha. I think there is a key, I think there is a clue in this text, in these words. What did the spirit of Elijah look like? We have to remember this was the one great earnest desire on Elisha's heart. He clearly understood that Elijah was about to depart, that it was about to be taken from him. He had poured water on the hands of Elijah for numbers of years. His mentor, his leader, his prophet was about to be taken from him, his spiritual father. In fact, listen to the words of Elisha. He said, my father, my father. The chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. What does that mean? It means that all of Israel has lost more today by the leaving and the departing of this one man of God than if we were devoid all of the powers of the armies of the nation of Israel. That's what it means. What does it mean for a man to be a man of God? It means that the nation is safer when the man of God is present uh, than if they had the greatest nuclear defense system available to the human family. 
When the man of God is present, when there's a direct line to heaven, when somebody knows God imminently and knows Him face to face, and all of Israel lost a great man and lost their security and lost their spiritual connection, except that there was a man who had a desire to have that same spirit, that same holy unction, that same anointing from God. And he knew that it couldn't be humanly manufactured. He knew he just couldn't start to act like Elijah. That he had to have a transaction made somewhere in the glory world where God sovereignly decided that he would do and he would impart the same anointing and the same unction to this man who was coming along behind. And so for a little while this morning I want us to think about the spirit of Elijah. What was it about the spirit of Elijah? Elisha didn't ask for his mantle, although that was the emblem. He didn't ask for his church discipline. He didn't even ask for his doctrine. He didn't even ask for a deeper understanding of who God was. He said, I want that same anointing. I want that same unction. I want that same spirit that lives and works and brings God near through you. I want it for myself. In fact, I want twice what you've got. I don't know about you this morning, but I thank God for the Methodist heritage. And I am not ashamed of it. I own it. I believe in it. I thank God for it. As I've been praying and preparing and thinking about all of the things that could be said, I just thought at least I would have to recount at least one great move of God in the Methodist church in 1801. It was in the spring of that year. Daniel Boone had been responsible, part of that church uh, in central Kentucky, for asking uh, for a pastor to come and to labor among them. His name was Barton Stone. Barton Stone began to preach perfect love. He began to preach entire sanctification. And that little congregation experienced a divine invasion. And there were hearts purified. And they began to have a revival. It wasn't too long through the summer months that word began to leak out and spread around the nation. It wasn't too long until the pastor felt they needed to call another meeting. That little church only held about 250 people. It's August now of 1801, and the people began to come from all parts of the nation until the United States Army had to help direct traffic, so to speak. 20,000, estimates of 20,000 gathered in for the Cane Ridge Revival meeting. A young man was converted in that meeting. Later, he would become a circuit-riding Methodist preacher. His name is James Finley. James Finley recorded this in his personal journal about that revival at Cane Ridge. He said the noise was like the roar of Niagara. The vast sea of human beings seemed to be agitated as if by a storm. I counted seven ministers at preaching at one time, some on stumps, some on wagons, and one was standing on a tree which had in falling lodged against another. Some of the people were singing, others praying, some crying for mercy in the most piteous accents, while others were shouting most vociferously while witnessing these scenes. A peculiarly strange sensation such as I have never felt before came over me. My heart beat tumultuously. My knees trembled. My lips quivered. And I felt as though I must fall to the ground. A strange supernatural power seemed to pervade the entire mass of mind collected there. I stepped up 
to under the log where I could have a better view of, of the surging sea of humanity. At one time I saw at least 500 swept down in a moment as if a battery of a thousand guns had been opened upon them and then immediately followed shrieks and shouts that rent the very heavens. There's a lot of folks in our crowds today that hear a testimony like that and they're suspicious of it and they're scared of it and they don't want anything to do with it. Well, brother and sister, I want everything to do with it. I've experienced that kind of holy divine invasion in my own heart. And I'm a part of the conservative holiness movement this morning because I found reality with God in this movement and in these churches that make up the conservative movement. I think one of the first things the, the Elijah spirit that Elisha was attracted to was the virtue. The virtue of that Elijah spirit. You know, there's a lot of folks that have just kind of stumbled over this figure, this Old Testament prophet Elijah. Was he an angel? Where did he come from? Read some of the commentators. They're all confused, some of them. Not sure about who he was. Well, brother, I read over in James uh, that he was a man sub -like, subject to like passions as we are. He was just as human as I am, just as human as you are. But God raised him up because God decided to bring, it, bring Israel a revival, a renewal, a spiritual restoration. It's been necessary for us to have already some of the kind of preaching that we've had in this meeting and I in no way mean to belittle it or to dishonor it. But ladies and gentlemen, when will we stop talking about how bad things are and how wicked our America is and, about, and start talking about what God does in times like these. Have you never read the preface to Elijah's story? Go to 1 Kings chapter number 16 and you'll find that the story is prefaced by this. Ahab sold himself to work iniquity before the Lord and that he did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than any other king that had lived before him. But you, you turn the page to 1 Kings chapter 17 and verse 1 and Elijah leaps from the mountains of Gilead like a lion and he bounces right in front of old wicked Ahab and he says to Ahab, Ahab, I want you to know that there's not going to be any rain, that there's not going to be any dew according to my word. And I'll tell you why, Ahab. It's because this nation is wicked and they're going to experience the judgment of God and they're going to be brought back to a place on Mount Carmel where they'll have to continue that the Lord is still God. I'm not a, 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 I hope that I have permission by the IHC council. And if I don't, please forgive me. I won't hold you responsible. But I still have my right uh, under the Constitution of the United States of free speech. Uh, and I'm here to say that our president and the leaders in Washington have done more to provoke the name of our God and to disgrace our heritage as a nation than any other political leaders before them. But I have great news. God is a match for our times. Elijah was fitted to his times. I believe with all of my heart that God wants to raise up a Wesley, that God wants to raise up an Elisha. Someone will say, Ahab, there's not going to be any rain until the nation is humbled down. Wondering where God is. Elijah's ministry was rooted in the word of God. Go back to Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 16 and verse 17. God himself said that if his people turned their backs on him and sinned against him and became idolatrous, that he would turn off 
the spigot. But I love the boldness of Elijah. Read Deuteronomy chapter 11. God doesn't say anything about dew. He said, I'll turn off the rain. But I'll tell you, Elijah was reading between the lines. And he had a direct contact to heaven. He said, there's not just going to be no rain. There's not even going to be dew to moisten the grass so that your mules and your donkeys and your horses can stay alive. According to my word. God said, okay, go down by the brook Cherith and hide yourself. I've got some work to do on you. I tell you, God knows how to bring virtue. This is a word we don't read a lot in the New Testament or in the Bible, actually, but it's in the New Testament over in Mark's Gospel, chapter 5. Mark's Gospel, chapter 5, we read that there was a certain woman. Church historians tell us her name was Veronica, and she was vexed. She had an issue of blood, a bleeding that would not be staunched. And for 12 long years, she spent all that she had with every physician in the nation to try to find a cure. But it was all spent, and she was not any better. But she heard that there was a lowly Nazarene, a carpenter from up in, from up in Judah that, that was doing miracles. And she heard of him, and she thought, this is my one last chance. And so the Bible says she came in the press. She came from behind, but she saw a way through. And she said, if I can just press through this crowd, if I can just get to Jesus, I believe that he has the cure that I need. Brother, sister, there's virtue waiting for your congregation. There's virtue waiting for the man of God that stands in your pulpit. All we have to do is press through the crowd and to get to Jesus and to reach out and to pull on the hem of his garment. And the Bible says, Mark's Gospel, chapter 5, that the Lord immediately knew that virtue had gone out of him. Where did that virtue go? It didn't stop being virtue after it left Jesus. No, sir. No brother, no sister. That virtue went into that poor woman and it staunched the blood immediately. It stopped her issue and she knew that she had been cured. I believe that's the kind of virtue Elijah had. I don't know how it happened. Jeremiah said, he said, is there not a balm in Gilead? We don't know much about Gilead. All we know is that it was the place of this expensive medicinal oil that come from the balsamic trees and the scholars say it was sold for twice its weight in silver. We know that Jacob and Laban met there and built an altar. But we really don't know much about Gilead. But I'll tell you whatever was happening on the east, on the west side of Jordan, or rather on the east side of Jordan over there in the mountains of Gilead, whatever was happening, I don't know for sure, but I know that somewhere along Elijah's journey, he reached up and he touched the hem of heaven's garment and virtue flowed down into his soul and he began to do things in the name of God and it changed the history of the world forever. I wonder here who this morning needs to press through and to get a fresh supply of divine virtue running through your ministry and coming into your home and transforming your barren altar into a place where tears flood and make for the river of God to grow. I'm talking about the virtue of the Elijah spirit. It's what attracted me. I got saved at 16 years of age in a little Christian day school where I saw Arlene Cober and Dale Stotsbury, my, two of my spiritual heroes, 
I saw them live out the holiness doctrine. I saw it in their faces. I saw it in their actions. I saw it in their reactions. And it made me hungry for God. And they fasted and prayed down a revival on that little school. On a Friday morning of that revival meeting, there wasn't one student standing in his seat with a rebellious attitude. We're all like slain at the altar, slain in our seats, praying and seeking and repenting. And I've not been the same from that day to this day. I tell you, we need some virtue to flow in our midst once again. Do you know what that word virtue is in the Greek? Mark's Gospel, chapter 5. It's the word dunamis. It's the same word Jesus used in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 when he said, but you shall receive dunamis. After that, the Holy Ghost is come upon you and you shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in all Samaria and under the uttermost parts of this earth. Brother, sister, there's more power in heaven waiting and virtue in heaven waiting to flow into the church of this day, this dark day. It will just press through the crowd. I know it's difficult. I've pastored for 11 years. I know what it's like to show up for prayer meeting and no one's there. I know what it's like to struggle and to pray and to weep and to try. But I'll tell you what, I've learned this about my mountain peaks. I've learned this. If I'll keep pressing and I'll keep pressing and I'll keep pressing, one of these days I'll get through the press, I'll get through the crowd, and I'll touch the hem of his garment and virtue will flow. virtue of the Elijah spirit. Do you want it? It's the power of the Holy Ghost. He said you shall receive power. You will have this virtue. This dynamite of heaven will flow through your being. I'll tell you, God has his way of teaching us how to trust in him. A couple years ago, in fact, Brother Sutherland, I don't know where he's at. I saw him here. He's here somewhere. Asked me to come and preach the Midwest camp with Dr. Bob Bolas. That spring I had started to get sick and I didn't know what was happening to me. I didn't have any insurance. I went and preached at the meeting in, in Indiana and went down, Brother Newton, I think Brother Newton might even be here, and I was down in North Carolina. I didn't know what was happening to me, but I got home. My wife had to drive us home. I got home and my church board said, well, we've got to get you some insurance. We've got to go see a doctor. I can't go into all the details, but I want to tell you this. It wasn't too long until I found out I, was, I had Crohn's disease. They put me to sleep, of course, and did the, their procedure and showed me the pictures and said, you're, you're ulcerated all the way through. I said, Doc, I said, what's my best prognosis? What's the best I can ever hope to experience? I had, I had lost weight. I was down to 123 pounds. My iron level was down to 19. I couldn't work. I couldn't even take the, the garbage out. I'd come back in and I'd sit on the, on the sofa and I would sit there and heave. My family thought I was dying. My wife thought I was dying. I thought I was dying. I'd, I'd soak my sheets every night from my ankles to my pillow. Just sweat out infection. My sheets would be soaked about 2 o'clock in the morning. I'd have to get up and put a towel down so I could finish sleeping that night. It was terrible. And I'll tell you, I, I, the Lord Jesus said to me, 
I want you to get a journal and I want you to start writing down what I'm going to do because there's some things you've got to learn, son. You see, the Lord spoke to me in the way I could understand. He said, Jeremy, I'm enrolling you in the Raven School of Theology. I said, oh, yeah? He said, yeah. I couldn't work. I didn't know how we were going to survive. I wondered who would pay the bills. I believe it was August 22nd when I went to my mailbox and the first check was there. The Lord said, write it down. I want you to know from August 8th or August 22nd, whenever it was, I have it in my journal till December 23rd, the Lord sent me, my wife, and my three children sent us over $16,000. We didn't just pay our bills. We made progress. I'll tell you, those were the days that I wept. Those were the days that I felt like I owned heaven and earth. Those were the days I felt like I was a child of God. He was walking right by my side. They were dark days, and I wouldn't want to go relive them, but I wouldn't trade them for anything in this world because God himself showed me in the Raven School of Theology. In fact, when he was done with me there, he sent me up to Zarephath Institute to work on a doctorate, and I haven't finished my course yet. But I'll tell you, brother, I learned some things. I learned when the, when the God of heaven calls you, when the God of heaven sends you, he will sustain you. He will accomplish his will through you. And there is no one in this earth that can shut the door that God himself opens. I'll tell you what it is we need. We need a fresh dose of holy boldness. Uh, we need a fresh dose of, of this uh, contentious spirit that says, uh, I will not sit by and allow the world to disgrace the name of our God. I will be jealous uh, over God's holy name. I will stand up uh, and I will offer a challenge to my community. I will offer a challenge to my home, uh, to my family. God must come down. God must show us once again that he's alive and well and on the throne. Our politicians are not our problem. Ahab wasn't the problem. It was bigger than Ahab. What we need is a divine invasion. Leonard Ravenhill. You know, how, you know why Leonard Ravenhill got saved? How many of you know the name Leonard Ravenhill? All right. Do you know how he got saved? I heard him just this week listening to a testament he gave when he was in his 80s. He said, I got saved when I was 14 years of age. He said, I'll tell you what drew me to God. He said, my father got saved as a result of a man who had gotten saved in the, well, in the Welsh revival. I don't remember the name of the young man, but he got saved in the Welsh revival and he came to where the, the Raven Hill family lived and he began to preach. And Leonard's father got gloriously saved. He said, my father got a radiant joy in his life. He got a, 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 a hunger for God. In fact, he actually enjoyed prayer. He said he would get some other men and they would go late at night into a church building that wasn't heated and they would start to pray. He said, when I was 14 years of age, my father asked me to go to one of his midnight prayer meetings. He said it was about 1 o'clock in the morning in a cold little sanctuary with about four or five other men. He said, and I saw my daddy take off his coat in that cold sanctuary. He said his back, his back was soaked with sweat and perspiration and he was about not to go home. He was enjoying the presence of God. He was enjoying the place of prayer. 
I'll tell you, friend, when's the last time you've showed your children that it was a pleasure to pray? When is the last time that you got hungry enough for God that you're willing to say to someone in your church, hey, brother, I know we don't have anything scheduled tonight, but let's come over and let's get a hold of God. Let's begin to pray. Pull on the prayer ropes of heaven until God does something in this church. The virtue of the Elijah spirit. Number two, the victory. The victory of the Elijah spirit. I have to think that Elijah, when he took the nation to Mount Carmel, I just have to think that maybe Elisha was there. You see, Elijah said, Ahab, you call all of Israel together. Call them all together. And I want the prophets of Baal here, the 450. I want the prophets of Asheroth here, 850. I want... I want us to have a little contest. I want us to find out whether there's still a God in heaven who will answer by fire. And whether his name is Jehovah or Baal, that is not. I just want to know, is there a God still in heaven that answers by fire? I tell you, I love that question that, that Elisha asked after Elijah was taken away. What was his question? It was, where is the Lord God of Elijah? Now, I've learned about some things. I did learn a couple of things uh, uh, in, in grammar school. I learned that there's differences uh, in types of questions. I mainly, I wasn't saved, of course, so I majored in girls and minored in sports. But I did listen just a little bit in English class, and they said there, there was rhetorical questions, uh, there was interrogative questions, and there was all sorts of these different kinds of questions. Uh, and when I read this question in the Word of God, I know it's not rhetorical, I know it's not interrogative, I understand it's an, it's an invocation. Elijah's saying, if God, the God of Elijah, I want you to show up. I want you to come and I want you to work and I want you to manifest yourself. What he was really saying is simply this. Where is the God who shuts off the rain spigot? Where is the God who, who commands the ravens? Where is the God who answers by fire? Where's the God who raises the dead as in Zarephath? By the way, do you know where Zarephath is? That's Jezebel's dad's backyard. You study it. The Bible says, Obadiah said to Elijah, he said, Elijah, there isn't a nation anywhere where we haven't searched for you and gotten a, a notarized seal of some sort that, that they don't have you. I mean, they've, they've put their lives on the line. You're not there. Well, no, I guess not, uh, because God was hiding them, and they couldn't find him. Not all the governments of the, this world could, could find him because God was hiding them. He literally, God has a sense of, of irony. He enjoys humor. He just moved uh, Elijah from the book Cherith right up to Zarephath. Just snuck him right in there in a widow's home right in Jezebel's dad's backyard. I think that's wonderful. But Elijah's victory. Oh, we owe it to our children. We owe it to this generation. We owe it to the people that we faithfully serve week after week. When will we get tired of playing church and say, Lord, I've got to press through. I've got to press through until there's some divine energy in our midst. Until there's a holy invasion that comes and gives us victory. I love the story of Mount Carmel. That Elijah spirit at noontime. When he says, hey, fellas, cry a little louder. You know, he is a God. He's just sleeping. You've got to wake him up. And that made them angry, and they pulled out their lancets. And they began to slice their bodies. And they began to gush with blood. And on into the evening hour, 
offer a sacrifice, Elijah mocked them and taunted them. He wasn't a bit afraid. I'll tell you, this man had holy boldness. That's like going into a beer joint and getting ordering a Budweiser and cracking a couple guys upside the head and saying, how's this taste? I mean, saying, you're going to get a black nose, right? Maybe not leave alive. Well, that's in essence what Elijah was doing. You guys got knives? I don't have any, but guess what? I have so much confidence in my God that he's going to protect me on this mountain and I want the nation to see and to never forget that Baal is not a God. You say he's the God of fire. You say he's the God of lightning. You say he's the God that controls the rain, but you've deceived the people. The only God that has that kind of power is Jehovah and I am his servant and I will represent him. When will we find some men and women who are willing to step out and say, I will be God's representative. I'm tired of playing church. I'm tired of halting between two opinions. I'm tired of dancing between the world and the church and back again. I'm going to get in this thing and I'm going to find out what God will do for me if I'll surrender every part of my being to the God of heaven. Ladies and gentlemen, I want you to know, I want you to know this afternoon that the man who belongs completely to God will always have heaven's protection. He will always have heaven's resources. He will always have the ear of the God who answers by fire. So in 63 words, he prays a simple short prayer. The Bible says, and the fire fell. You see, the Elijah victory is the victory of obedience. When will you get tired of caring what people think about you? And you'll be foolish enough to just obey God. You know what revival is? It's the people of God living in the power of an unquenched, ungrieved spirit. It is the people of God living in the power of an unquenched, ungrieved spirit. We don't preach much on the sin of blasphemy. It's the unpardonable sin. Every once in a while, if you travel to a remote camp meeting, you might hear a, last, a sermon on the last night of camp meeting, but we don't preach a whole lot about it. I'll tell you what I, w I wish we'd start preaching about. About grieving the Spirit. About quenching the Spirit. How about last night when the choir was singing and God began to settle down and nobody knew what to do and we were all waiting for Roland Mitchell to get something started. Our brother, brother, I, I grew up listening to Dr. L.B. Hicks on tape, tape and CD. I remember him preaching this is that. I remember until I could hear the Holy Ghost condescending on the congregation in witness to the truth of God's word until L.B. Hicks had to stop preaching. We as a people have forgot what it means to operate and to live in the power of an unquenched, ungrieved spirit. Leonard Ravenhill said that John Wesley preached more from Romans chapter 8 verse 16 than any other text in the Holy Bible. 
The Spirit Himself bears witness to our spirits that we are the children of God. I tell you, the Spirit not only bears witness to you as His adopted son and daughter, but He also bears witness to the truth of God as it's being preached. He will always honor the Word of God because the Word is Jesus Christ. And He came to exalt and to honor the Word. And I'm asking God in these days to teach me what it means to not care about what this person thinks or what that person thinks, but to get so hungry and so desperate for divine invasion that I'm willing to mind God and let the responsibility with Him to defend my reputation. I'll never forget that night in Lansing, Michigan. Lucas Shroud is in this service somewhere. I saw him. He was on the piano that night. I'll never forget what happened. It was my first taste of what it means to obey God and forget what others think about you. That senior year of my college, my senior year of college, I remember that Friday night. I can remember it with a photographic memory. I can remember how it unfolded. It made such a divine imprint on my soul. I never will forget what happened that night. The Holy Spirit for three nights had been telling to me, had been speaking to me. Friday night, Saturday night, Sunday night. I finally obeyed him on Monday night. I was testing the spirits. I was trying the spirits. I was scared to death. I didn't want to get out of order. I didn't want to do something in the flesh. I was scared of what Barry Mason or Michael Mason or whoever was directing the choir. I was scared of what they, they might say about me and tell Brother Zuckman about me. But I'll tell you what. On Friday night, when we got to where we were going, nobody else knew but I knew. God, the Holy Spirit said, Jeremy, I don't want you going to supper tonight. You have ridden in the day in the bus all day long, but I want you to get away by yourself. Don't join the choir for supper tonight. You come into one of these Sunday school rooms, and you get down on your face, and you begin to intercede for this choir tour. And I did. In obedience to God, I did. And all weekend long, God kept saying to me, get off the choir risers. I said, Lord, that's not in the program. He said, get off the choir risers. I said, Lord, it's not in the program. He said, get off the choir ride. So I said, Lord, it's not in the program. On Monday night, that same sweet spirit came to me. God was on the place. God was all over the place. God was helping. But on that Monday night, I finally got simple enough and foolish enough to say, Lord, if you want me off these choir risers, I'm going right now. And I'll tell you, come down in front of where the pulpit would have been. I didn't know what I was going to say. I didn't know what would happen. But I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that I was doing what I was doing in obedience to God Almighty. I looked at those people. The precious lines were up there laboring in that Pilgrim Holiness Church. Place was packed from front to back, side to side. Oh, probably dozens and dozens and dozens of unchurched children and young people in that service. I looked at them and said this. Some of you don't have any idea about what's going on here tonight. But can I tell you that Jesus Christ has saved me from my sins. And that's the last thing I remember just for a little bit. Because the next thing I knew a power somewhere from the glory world had picked me up and sent me out in the aisle and sent me running to the back and down this way and across this way. Oh brother I tell you there was so much power exploding inside me 
money. I didn't know what was going to happen. Later, one of the choir members said, Jeremy, you were clearing the windowsills. I believe it because there was something on the inside that was about to tear me to pieces. I went back this way and back this way and back that way. When I came down the aisle for the last time, the Holy Spirit of God just laid me down over on my face. It didn't hurt a bit. Dave North said, I thought you had a massive heart attack and died. No, sir. I was alive and well. But I laid there for about 15 seconds. I got up and started to pull. I started to preach. I started to pull them in wherever I felt a pull. And I'll tell you, the mourner's bench line and the front seat's line. And you couldn't get in between because there was people praying and seeking God. That Monday night did something for me that I will never get over. I sensed all of the power from the God of heaven at work in my life. I could take you back through the mountain peaks of my ministry. I could take you to North Troy, New York, just a small little congregation. But can I tell you on that Sunday morning, I walked the backs of the pews and I preached. And a man who was in that congregation whose wife had just committed suicide down to the altar, he came. And I tell you, I prayed and I prayed. And when I got through praying with him, I said, how does that feel? He didn't know what to say, but he looked up to me and he said, hot dog Clinton Clinton Camp and Crystal Park and down through my short ministry already I'll tell you brother I believe there's a God who wants to divinely invade our midst and give us a taste of what it means to have the virtue and the victory of the Elijah spirit I must hasten to a close. Elisha said, I want your spirit and I want double what you've got. Let me close with the violence, the violence of the Elijah spirit. I know this isn't gonna be politically correct. I know Jesus taught us different. We don't kill people today. No, sir. Elijah did. Elijah said, don't you allow those prophets of Baal to escape. Don't you allow those prophets to escape. They've deceived the nation. They must be destroyed. There must be some things destroyed out of our midst if we're going to have the Elijah spirit. There are going to be some things that God will want you to destroy forever and never turn back if you're going to have his power and his unction and his anointing, you're going to have to destroy it. You're going to have to get violent and destroy it. Jesus said from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence and the violent take it by force. I tell you, brother, when James sat down to write his epistle, it wasn't the fire. It wasn't Mount Carmel. It wasn't the raising of that widow woman's son from the dead. It wasn't the ravens. He zeroed in in this New Testament age on what really is going to matter. He said, James, a man subject to like passions as you, prayed. And it rained not. And he prayed again. And it rained. Prayer is still our final hope our only hope.
As I've been studying and I've been praying and I've been seeking God, the Lord pointed something out to me that I have to share with you. Back in First Kings, second, yeah, First Kings, chapter seventeen. Actually, the verse, first verse of chapter eighteen. The Lord said to Elijah in the third year, saying, "Go show thyself unto Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. I will send rain upon the earth." Now, ladies and gentlemen, if if, a, if Elijah had gotten such a direct order from the Lord. Why was it still necessary for him to say to Ahab, Ahab, get in your chariot and drive as fast as you can back to Jezreel because I hear the sound of an abundance of rain. We may understand the legitimacy of all of that, but then why did Elijah have to go back up to the mountain? And to get his face between his knees, to shut out every hindrance, everything that would distract him from God. And the Bible said he prayed. And when he prayed through the first time, he said to his servant, go out there where you can see the sea and tell me if you see any clouds. And the servant came back and said, oh man of God, the, the sky is as clear as it's ever been. There's not one cloud. And Elijah said, well, I have God's promise. I'm not discouraged. And the second time he put his face between his knees and he began to talk to the God that had answered by fire. You know where I'm leading. He did it again and he did it again and he did it again. And seven times... He sent his servant to run that trail to look out towards the sea to see if perhaps there was a cloud in the sky. And finally, on the seventh time, he came back with a message. There is a cloud the size of a man's hand. You say, well, it isn't much, but it was enough because Elijah had prayed clear through. Is it accident? We come back to that word again. Veronica had to press through. Elijah had to pray through. He could have got up and said, well, God said it would happen. I'm going to let that up to him. I'm going to let him decide when he sends the rain. I'm going to go down and have me a bite to eat. I mean, it's as good as done if God said he was going to send rain. Oh, no. Not if you have the violent spirit of an Elijah. You say, if God said there's going to be rain then there's going to be rain. And we're not going to wait 40 years for it to rain. We're going to have rain right now. Ladies and gentlemen, my Bible tells me, Joel chapter 2, 28 to 32, and Acts chapter 2, verse 16 and following, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel, thus saith the Lord God, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And in those days I will visit my handmaidens and my servants, and they shall prophesy. And your young men and your old men will dream dreams and see visions, and things are going to happen before the sun is turned to blood, and the moon is turned to blood, and the sun to darkness. He said, I want you to know there's going to be some divine invasions. And the apostles heard that and they said, we're going to wait right here in this upper room for 10 days or for 10 years. It doesn't matter. We'll stay right here until Jesus Christ honors his word and sends the comforter. 
We're going to have a divine invasion. We need it right now, so desperately. And we're going to have it right now because it's within our privilege as the church. The violent take it by force. This is what's missing. This is what's missing. I confess tonight. I confess tonight. This is what's missing in my own life. I got back to my motel last night. I was tired. I was tired. But I wasn't about to come to stand before you without standing before the Lord. And so I didn't have a place to pray, but I went out in the parking lot and I crawled into my minivan and I locked the doors and I began to pray and I began to pray. And I'm just ashamed to tell you that I couldn't stay there all night, but I did make it to about one o'clock this morning. And I apologize to the Lord and he's come and helped me in spite of my weakness. But I'll tell you, that we, we need to go home and we need to get into some all-night prayer meetings. We need to start seeking the Lord. We need to get violent. We need to understand that it's our privilege. It's our prerogative. We're not, we can't force God to send revival, but we can, we can get into position and get ready for it. The preacher said this morning, Brother Dallas said it so well, the kingdom is not in our hands, it's in the Father's hands. We're not in control of some things. But I'll tell you what we are in control of. We're in control of our own prayer closet. You have the keys to your own prayer closet. Stop acting like you don't have the keys to your own prayer closet. No man will ever be greater than he is in his own prayer closet. When will God drive us back to the prayer closet and say, Lord, forgive me for my shallow living. Forgive me because I'm content to, to go and play church without the divine invasion of the Holy Spirit. I want to close with this thought. Elijah said, Elisha, you have asked a hard thing. I think I know something about that hard thing. I got curious and I began to pray about that hard thing. I said, Lord, what's this mean? I need a clear understanding. I need to understand what, what was so hard about this. I'll tell you what was so hard about it. The first time that Hebrew word appears in the word of God is Genesis chapter 35. Jacob had just picked up his little tribe, his children, his wives. Rachel was expecting and he began to make his way from Bethel, the house of God, to Bethlehem, the house of bread. And in Genesis 35, we read these words. And Rachel travailed and had hard labor. And again in the second verse, and Rachel had hard labor and she died. You see, generational transitions are hard. Most of the time, they require somebody to actually die. Not physically, as in Rachel's case, but to die spiritually. To die the death to self. Can you imagine if, if Rachel hadn't been willing to die to give birth? Can you imagine what happened to the nation? You remember what Rachel said to Jacob? Give me children or I die. I cannot bear 
the shame of no children? When will our pastors and our leaders, when will our men and our women stand up and say, Lord, we cannot endure the shame of no converts in our church. We cannot go on another day without having some mourner's benches filled from one end to the other. We're done playing church. It's time to have children or we die in the process. We're going to give ourselves to this endeavor and we're going to have children by the grace of God. We're going to stay at it until we have children or we will physically die if need be. You know, I kind of feel sorry for Benjamin. Jacob lay a dying, Genesis 49. And Jacob said, sons, I'm going to give you a prophetic vision of what's going to happen to you in the last days. And he began to go down through the sons and tell them one by one what was going to happen to them, what was going to look like. He got down to Joseph and he gave these five, six verses of a flowery bow over the wall. Fruitful and bountiful and vegetation and life and Boy, it's just a beautiful picture. And there's just little one verse there in Genesis 49 about Benjamin. And it's not a pretty picture. He said, Benjamin, you shall raven as a wolf. In the morning, you will devour the prey. And at night, you will divide the spoil. That's not, that's not real good news, is it? Follow that down through the pages of Holy Scripture. The saddest pages in the Bible are Judges, the last three chapters of the book of Judges, when the tribe of Benjamin rises up to defend. Some men among them had been so wicked to abuse a woman all night until she was dead in the morning. You can remember what they really wanted. They wanted the priest, the Levite, who had gone inside. But the unnamed farmer comes out and says, here's my virgin daughter, and here's this man's concubine. What a dark, dark passage in God's word until we read that story and we see that the entire tribe is nearly annihilated just 600 Benjaminites left follow with me down past the judges and past the prophets to the days of the king when King Saul gets away from God and disobeys why is it that he becomes a wolf through the hills of Judea chasing God's anointed David to the caves of Engedi, seeking his prey to devour it and to divide the spoil. What is it in the New Testament? Romans chapter 11 and verse 11, Paul said, I indeed am an Israelite of the tribe of Benjamin. What was it this man, this Benjaminite, this man from Tarsus named Saul, what was it that he was without God? A wolf, a headhunter, down to Damascus to get the Christians, to divide and spoil and to imprison and to bring carnage to the church of God, to wreak havoc. But I'm here to tell you that the wolf from the tribe of Benjamin was no match for the lion of the tribe of Judah. Because on the road to Damascus, he saw the Lamb of God. The lion sprang from the shadows and he said, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. He said, who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom thou persecutest. Saul, it's me. 
Jesus of Nazareth, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And I'm here to serve notice that the old wolf has got to die. I'll tell you, friend, if Rachel hadn't been willing to die to give some children to Jacob, we never had Paul. We never had nearly one half of the New Testament. We never would have had the greatest missionary that this world has ever known. But Rachel was willing to die. And if the church of Jesus Christ in this late day and in this dark hour is willing to get on their faces and get stretched out before God and willing to say no to self and no to some other things that God the Holy Spirit will put his finger on, I want you to know that the wolf is no match for the lion and Jesus Christ is still here among us to do his work, to send virtue flowing once again through his church to bring victory in the little place where you labor unappreciated and unknown but the fire of God is being kindled and it is ready to fall but you have got to get violent you have got to be willing to say I will press through the crowd I will press through my problems I will press through the challenges. I will not tolerate the disgrace of God's name in my pulpit or in my church. We're gonna have some spiritual children or we're gonna die in the process of trying to bring them to birth. Our musicians are playing something there may be people in this congregation this afternoon that would say, Pastor, preacher, I tell you, I'm not even in a position to come to the altar with the saints. I need to get saved. I need to get sanctified. You come here to the front and I'll tell you, someone will pray with you. We won't leave until you pass from death unto life. We won't leave until you know the power of God saving you from the darkness of sin and bringing the light and the glory and the grace of Jesus Christ. What is revival? What is revival? It is the people of God living in the power of the unquenched, ungrieved Spirit of God. That's what it is. Let's call on God. Let's call on God. Let's make this a revival rally to remember. Not for our sakes. Not for the promotion of any person except the Lord Jesus Christ. And the truth of his word. Brother Statler is coming to lead the service from this point. Let's seek the Lord. Take for granted the heritage of holiness that has been passed on. I don't want to lose the fire. Thank you for listening to Convention Pulpit, a ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention, featuring Wesleyan voices past and present. For more sermons or for more information, visit www.ihconvention.com. 
This ministry is made possible through the financial support of our listeners. You may give online at ihconvention.com or send your donation to IHC, Post Office Box 99, New Berlin, Pennsylvania, 17855-USA. Thank you.